to our summer series through the Ten Commandments that we have been calling Law School. Since this is week six of that series, you would think that we'd be talking about the sixth commandment this morning. But if you think that, I would forgive you for being wrong. But we have a good reason for you being wrong. We actually have a guest speaker that we have invited to specifically teach on the sixth commandment. And his name is, I'm not going to tell you this morning. I'll let you sit on the edge of your seats for a while. We're really excited about having him come up. The problem is he's a very busy man with his own job. Um, and so his schedule won't allow him to do this until a little bit later in August. So, so you'll have to wait till the end of August to find out who this is, to get this amazing commandment being taught to you on the Sixth Commandment. Um, but for today, the way that we're going to make this work is we're just going to swap out the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments, what, what would have happened at the, at the end of August there. So that's what we're focusing on today, the Ninth Commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And if you think about it, it actually works out really well that we're swapping out number six and number nine, because the number nine is really just an upside-down six. Or, wait for it, nine is a six bearing false witness about itself. Yeah? That didn't... Thank you. The 9 a.m. was silent throughout that. I was dodging tomatoes, and so you guys are better. I'm going to pull out the rest of my jokes here. All right. Don't, no, whoa. no, did I hear a no or was that a whoa? Oh, okay. All right. Thank, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm here all week. Um, let's just move on. So the ninth commandment is don't bear false witness. Um, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Like many of the other commandments, uh, this one's pretty easy to understand on the surface, right? We, we simplify it and teach it to children by just simply saying, don't tell lies. And of course, no pun intended, that's true, but it's actually more than that. The, the language of this command, you can hear this very clearly, it's legal in nature. This is the language of a courtroom. The, the picture that's being painted is one of a trial where false testimony has the potential to bring unjust punishment on someone or rob someone of justice. So the question is, well, why word it that way? The Hebrew language, which is what the Ten Commandments were originally written in, they had words for, for lying. It could have just said, do not tell lies. So why the legal language? And, and if you zoom out and look at the Ten Commandments in context, it actually is it's pretty simple why they chose to word it, why God chose to word it this specific way. Remember, these commandments were not originally given to an individual they were given to a nation, to a political nation called Israel. And political nations need laws, and they need ways of enforcing those laws, including some system of justice with, with rules for trials and ways of giving testimony and fair judgment and all those kinds of things. So in that context, the Ninth Commandment uh, makes a whole lot of sense using that kind of courtroom language, especially when you look at the three commandments that come right before it. Right before the Ninth Commandment, you get do not murder, don't commit adultery, and don't steal, which of course are all good moral commands, but for the nation of Israel, according to their law, they were also crimes that carried very severe penalties if you broke them. That's why the commandment about not bearing false witness comes right after those, because a false witness could, could really bring a lot of harm to a person wrongfully accused of one of those crimes simply by virtue of the words that they chose to use. And that's why I want to make the case that the Ninth Commandment is about more than just lying. It's about ultimately not using our words in a way that intentionally seeks the harm of our neighbor. Or if we flip that around, it's really teaching us to use our words 
in a way that intentionally seeks the good of our neighbor. And to figure out exactly what that looks like for us today and how that works, we're going to turn to the Apostle Paul's New Testament letter to the Colossians. We're going to be spending the rest of our time there today. So let me go ahead and read you the two passages from that letter that we'll be focusing on. We're going to be in Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and then I want to read two verses from chapter 4 as well. Here's what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And now we'll jump over just quickly to chapter 4 of Colossians, just two verses, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's a lot going on in those verses, a lot of ground that Paul is covering. What I want to do, though, is really just focus on two things that he's doing there, and that's going to kind of form the outline for the rest of our time together. The first thing he's doing is he's painting a picture of what it should look like to to live and to speak in a way that's good for others and for the glory of God. So he's painting this picture of what it looks like. That's the first thing we'll talk about. But then he goes on to talk about the power behind the picture, the power that we need in order to make this picture not just an ideal that we strive for, but a reality that we actually live out. So we've got the picture and we've got the power. That's what we'll be talking about today. So let's start with that first idea, which is this picture that he's painting. Now, before I delve too deeply into this idea, I think this is a good place to just pause and explain why I chose chose to use two different passages in Colossians instead of just one, which is what we would normally do. The first passage from chapter 3, if you were listening carefully, you would notice that it, it talks specifically about how followers of Jesus should live and speak inside the Christian community called the church, among other fellow believers. But then in chapter 4, those two verses I read... Paul literally mentions outsiders there. He's talking about how we should speak in relation to people who don't share our faith, people who are outside the church. So we really need both of these passages to give us a more complete picture of how it looks to use our words for the good of others inside the church and outside the church. So let's start there with that first picture, which is what does that look like inside the family? 
I told you a second ago, Colossians 3 has a whole lot to say about it, a whole vast array of a different number of ethical topics. But since we're focusing specifically, because we're talking about the ninth commandment, on how we use our words, let's start with verses 8 through 9. We're in chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Let me read it to you again. The Apostle Paul says, but now you must put them all away. Put what away? He lists them out for us. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. This is what scholars call a vice list. The Apostle Paul loves to use these in his letters along with virtue lists, and and they're not meant to be like an exhaustive list of every possible vice, but what they do give us is kind of general categories for things that Christians should avoid practicing. And And if you paid attention in this particular list, the last three of these are very clearly what we could call vices of the mouth. These are wrong ways to use our words. So I think before we move any farther, it would just be really helpful if we could pause and define what each three of those things really mean. The first thing he mentions is slander. Your, your version of the Bible might translate it differently. The Greek word behind it is literally blasphemia which I don't think it takes a Bible scholar to figure out, is the word that we typically use for blasphemy towards God. But it's also very often in the New Testament used of blasphemy towards other people, which is really the best way to understand it in this context, because in this context, he's talking about our interactions with other Christians. So just like blasphemy towards God, blasphemy or slander towards other people is when we use our words to injure someone's good reputation. It's when we paint them as a villain in the story instead of a good guy in the story by wrongly ascribing to them bad motives and bad deeds. That's what slander is. The second thing he talks about is obscene talk. That's an English attempt at translating a single Greek word. If we tried to translate it super literally, it would probably say something like shameful words. Other English versions, and maybe yours, probably say something like filthy language, dirty language, an abusive language. So when you think about that definition and then you put it together with what we just said about slander and you put it together with what comes next, lying, it's pretty clear that obscene talk, this obscene talk at the very least includes what we might call colorful insults about other people that we would be ashamed to use maybe in the presence of a child or in the presence of our grandmother or someone like that. We often call it venting. God calls it shameful. He calls it obscene. Lastly, we're told not to lie to one another. And that obviously is the commandment most easily connected to the ninth commandment. But when you think about it, really all three of these things fall under that category of of not bearing false witness against your neighbor. You and I may never be in a position to give a false and harmful testimony in a court of law. I hope we're not. But every time we speak words in a way intended to defame somebody's good reputation or insult their character or intelligence or appearance or tell lies to them or about them, every time we do that, we are giving false and harmful testimony in the court of public opinion. And believe it or not, the court of public opinion is often a lot less forgiving than the court of law. And I can't think of a better story to illustrate that than the story of a man named Richard Jewell. You may or may not be familiar with this story. Clint Eastwood made a movie about him not too long ago. Richard Jewell is, is famous, or you might say infamous, for being the security guard who discovered a bomb at the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And he, you know, phoned it in to the authorities. He helped clear the area. He probably saved hundreds of people's lives. And so initially he was hailed as a hero, but very quickly word began to spread and leak out that the FBI was actually considering him as a suspect. There was no hard evidence for that. It really shouldn't have leaked out to reporters, but by that point it was too late. So this man who initially was a hero now very quickly became a villain. He had reporters hounding him and his mother outside their apartment. They were contacting his previous places of employment. Stories filled with lies and conjecture were filling newspaper articles and and TV airwaves. And even, it got so bad, even Jay Leno began insulting this man's character and appearance on The Tonight Show. He was never actually charged with the crime. Finally, the Justice Department came out and just very clearly said he's not a suspect. But by that point, the damage was already done. I want you to listen to Richard Jewell's own words After he was finally cleared of any wrongdoing, he's speaking to the same reporters that had been camping outside his home. He says this to them, you know my name, but you do not really know who I am. For 88 days, I lived a nightmare. I felt like a hunted animal followed constantly waiting to be killed. In their mad rush to fulfill their own personal agendas, the FBI and the media almost destroyed me and my mother. And then he later went on to say, I'm now a lot more cynical than I used to be. I'm not as trusting as I once was, and I don't think I'm as outgoing as I used to be, end quote. This man was slandered, talked about obscenely, and lied about, not in the court of law, but in the court of public opinion. And not only did it bring him and the people he cared about real harm, in his own words, it almost destroyed them. That's what it looks like to bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, all three of those things we just looked at are negative commands. We're told not to use our words in those ways. So if we want to figure out how we should then use our words, the easiest way to do that would just be to flip those things on their head. So so if our words should not be harmful or filthy or false, then they should be kind, pure, and true. That's one way to think about that. That's pretty simple. But Colossians 3 actually gives us what I would call another more complete answer to what it looks like to actually use our words the right way. So Paul has just spent quite a bit of time telling us to put away things. Now he's going to switch gears and talk about what we should put on. This is going to be his virtue list. So listen to verses 12 through 13 and and think about these things in the context of how we should use our words. He's told us to put away slander, obscenity, and lying. Now listen to what he tells us to put on, verses 12 through 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, obviously, if we had more time, we could dive into the detail of what all those Greek words mean, but I don't think we need to do that. Not only do I think that they're pretty obvious what they mean, the Apostle Paul actually gives us a neat little summary statement that kind of gets to the heart of what they're all driving at in the very next verse. Verse 14, listen to the way he words this, and above all these, above all those virtues we just listed, which were pretty amazing, so whatever he's about to say must be awesome, above all these, put on love. Now, the question is, why love above all those other virtues? Here's the answer. Love is the thing which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
Now, I'm sure you can tell by this point, the imagery that that Paul is using with all this put off and put on language is the imagery of putting on clothing. So you might imagine all of those virtues that he listed first in verses 12 to 13, you could think of those as like a shirt, pants, socks, shoes. But love here, he says, is like the belt. Not only does it literally keep all the other things from falling apart, it also ties all the pieces together to make them more beautiful. And I actually wore a belt today so I could be a living sermon illustration for you to see. Because, and I mean this, I mean that kind of funnily, but also like for real, if I wasn't wearing a belt, not only would my shirt come untucked, but also you would realize like something's off about that. You'd be whispering to your neighbor about how that ensemble doesn't work without a belt or something like that. It would just look weird without a belt. All of the virtues in verses 12 through 13 don't work without love. Love is the thing that brings them all together. Love is the essential ingredient to keeping our words from being out of place or ugly or harmful. And that's why later in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a different letter, but it's very similar to Colossians, he doesn't just tell them there not to lie. He actually says to speak the truth in love. And to the Ephesians, he doesn't just say, don't let any corrupting talk or obscene talk come out of your mouths, but he chases that with, but only the kind of language that is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who here. In other words, you put all these things together, and the picture he's painting is that we should, we should not speak in a way that seeks to tear people down in anger, wrath, and malice, hoping they get the punishment that we feel they deserve. We should be speaking to build people up in kindness, humility, and love, hoping that it gives them grace even if they don't deserve it. That's how we should use our words. And remember, Paul is speaking these commands specifically to people inside the church, to people inside the family. And his point there isn't that that you don't have to speak that way outside the church, like there's two different standards. The point is actually one that I think we all know way too well, which is that it's usually the people that we're closest to that we speak the worst to. Think about your own family, your own biological family. The, The better we know people, the more time we spend with them, there are just simply more opportunities for them to, to hurt us and disappoint us and more opportunities to see their flaws and weaknesses. And of course, all of that makes it easier to slander, insult, and lie about or to the people inside the family of the church. Which of course then really kind of brings up the second part of this picture that Paul is painting. Well, well if, if that's how and why we should use our words inside the church, then what does it look like outside the church community? Of course, everything we just said still applies there, but really the question we're asking is, is what do we especially need to be on the lookout for when speaking to or around people who don't share our faith in Christ? Paul gives us the answer to that in the next chapter, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and in that answer, he highlights really quickly three things, three qualities of speech that we should have when considering people that are outside the faith. Here's what he says, and I'm just going to pause and point out those three things as we go. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And now he's about to tell us what that wisdom looks like in regards to our speech. Let your speech always be gracious. That's quality number one. Grace in the New Testament always refers to a kind of kindness that we show to people even though they don't deserve it. So number one, when speaking to people outside the faith, our speech should be as kind as possible, even if people don't deserve it in our minds. 
Number two, the second quality says our speech should be seasoned with salt. If you think about salt, especially in the ancient world, it was a preservative, but it also made things pleasant to taste. So, so the metaphor he's using here is that our speech should be as attractive and winsome and pleasant as possible. And then the third thing he says is that so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Think about the way he worded that. There is a right or a best way to answer each different kind of person. So our speech, as much as possible, should be adapted to fit the unique individual that we are speaking to. Now, when you, when you back up and look at all three of those things, I, I think the reason that the Apostle Paul chooses to emphasize those three qualities of speech when we're talking to people outside the faith is because they are the answer to the most typical problems we face in those interactions. In other words, here's what I mean. Christians need to be reminded to speak graciously and winsomely and thoughtfully to non-Christians because so often we can come across the opposite of that as exclusive, holier-than-thou, weird, or insincere, right? I hear snickers. Either somebody's been on the other end of that or somebody's done that before. And listen, I'll be the first to admit that, that that's me too. And of course, some, some of this is just kind of completely out of our control. We live in a culture that is increasingly losing knowledge of and losing respect for Christianity. So there's some sense in which Christians are just going to be seen as weird or exclusive or intolerant, no matter what we say or do. But if we can be brutally honest for just a moment. Sometimes Christians can communicate in ways that unnecessarily invite outsiders to view us in a negative light. And unfortunately, I saw an extreme example of this about a month ago when my brother and his girlfriend were in town. I don't know if you have this experience, but if you live near Washington, D.C., and people come to visit you who don't live near Washington, D.C., they want to go to Washington, D.C., no matter how much you try to talk them out of it. So that's what they wanted to do. I, I used to not live here for many years, and I would come up and visit, and I was one of those people. And now that I live here, I never go there unless somebody forces me to go there. But lo and behold, we made a trip to Washington, D.C., and we got there. We had to go to the White House. They wanted to see the White House. And if you've ever been to the White House, it's not what you see on movies where you can just, you know, see it perfectly and nobody's in your way. There's tons of people there, super crowded, adults, children. Everybody's trying to take pictures. It's a wonderful time. And I'm not being cynical. And in the middle of all that, though, there was this group of Christians who had these signs, and they had loudspeakers, and they had a bullhorn, and they were preaching against the sins of our nation. Now, I realized that, that had I, like, gone to talk to these people, I probably would have found that we probably had a lot of, of core beliefs in common, because we, we both would claim to believe the Bible. We probably believe more or less the same thing about sin, the same thing about salvation. But, but here's my confession. I found myself annoyed and not wanting to be associated with those people, not because I don't want to be associated with Christ, but because these people were not being gracious they weren't being winsome, and the way they were communicating didn't fit that unique context and audience. And I can tell you, I was not the only one that was annoyed. There was another dude like nearby that had his own speaker playing the Cupid Shuffle, trying to drown them out, and people were like on his side. Like, yeah, man, giving him high fives and stuff. I may or may not have been one of those people. I wasn't, I promise. But here's, here's my point. Here, here's the sad reality. We can laugh about this, but for many people in the crowd that day, it probably just confirmed what our culture increasingly thinks that Christians really know how to ruin a good time. 
People were just there to take pictures of the White House with their family, and they can't hear each other think. So you might think I'm picking on street preachers, and I'm really, that's not really not the point of this. There may be a better way to do that than what I saw there. What I'm trying to do is, is hold up this extreme picture for, for all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus to help us do a little hard looking in the mirror. When we find ourselves interacting with, speaking with people who don't share our faith, the questions I want you to consider are, are we unnecessarily rude and annoying? There's another question. Are we really interested in knowing and loving the person in front of us, or are we really just trying to check off a mission objective so we can feel better about ourselves? Share Jesus today. See you later. What was your name again? There's another question. Are we trying to win people, or are we trying to score points and win arguments? We could keep going with these questions, but these are the things that we need to consider when we're using our words outside the church. Now, we covered a lot of ground. What, what I want to do to kind of just wrap all that up and give you like a practical way of walking out of here with something you can, you can do is just leave you, before we move to the next point, leave you with four guiding questions that kind of sum up everything we've just said. When you are deciding to speak to or about anyone, whether it's inside or outside the church, ask yourself these four questions. Number one, is what you're about to say true? That's number one. Is it true? Number two, is it necessary to seek the other person's good? Number three, is it as kind as it possibly can be? Number four, does the way that you're wording this fit the specific context and audience? If you can answer all four of those questions in the affirmative, if you can say yes to all those, then, then it's very likely that you're on the right path to not bearing false witness against your neighbor, but speaking the truth in love for your neighbor. And I think if, if, we, if we're all honest, if we look at the picture we just painted, I don't know if anybody would say that's an awful way to live. If we all used our words in that way, we would live in a perfect world. But newsflash, we don't live in a perfect world, not in the church or out of the church, because all of this sounds really nice and easy on a Sunday morning sitting in a red chair. The question is, how do we actually put this into practice this week or maybe just 15 minutes after we leave the church doors when the kids are throwing a tantrum, we're arguing with our spouse about where to eat lunch, or our boss is calling us trying to get us to work on the weekend, or our classmate is spreading rumors about us on social media, or your associate pastor preached a message you didn't like, Sorry, wait. Senior pastor. I messed that up. Sorry. Sorry. Small groups director. I, it's one of those. I can't tell. The point is, in, in, in really hard moments where you don't feel like using your words to build people up, how do you, where do you find the power to use our words to lovingly build people up and not selfishly tear them down? Where do you find that power? And of course, that's our, our second, that's our last main idea today, the power behind the picture. Over and over throughout chapter 3, I've talked about this a little bit already, Paul commands followers of Jesus to actively do things. Here's the words he uses. He says to put to death, put away, and put off all these wrong and harmful ways of living and speaking, and then put on all these right and beneficial ways of living and speaking. Now, there's an obvious but easily ignored lesson there in the simplicity and the directness of what he commands. And here it is. No amount of Bible study or prayer or counseling alone will ultimately change the way that you live or speak 
if you don't make a conscious decision to actually take action, to actually do the hard work. The reason that we so easily ignore the simplicity of that is because that kind of decisive, life-changing action is usually a very painful process. That's why he calls it a putting to death, because it hurts. What he's saying is that eventually, you've got to stop talking about all these things, and you've got to do the hard and painful work of identifying the wrong ways you're using your words, which usually involves the very awkward process of inviting people to speak into your life. So you've got to identify the wrong way you're using words. You've got to actually admit that they're destructive to yourself and to others and dishonoring to God. And then you've got to understand that the answer is not just simply continuing to tell yourself that I'm just a work in progress, I'm not perfect. That's true. The answer is not just to simply just keep asking for forgiveness. That's good. The answer is to see those harmful ways of speaking for what they really are, a monstrous enemy, and choose to kill them. You cannot make peace with destructive words. You must make war against them. But, of course, that brings us back to the question, how in the world do you do that? Obviously, Christians should live this way, but, but here's the million-dollar question. Why aren't we any better at this? We all know, looking inside ourselves and looking around, that we got a lot of work to do. So how do we actually find the power to do it? What I want to do now is kind of trace out the Apostle Paul's logic, his train of thought in Colossians chapter 3 so that we can get to the root of this answer. So just, just follow along with me as we put all these pieces together. Let's start in verses 8 through 9 again. I've already read these to you. I want to draw your attention to a different part of it now. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Notice that that list of vices doesn't begin with words that come out of our mouths. It begins with attitudes that are lodged inside of our hearts. Before he ever talks about slander or obscenity or lying, he talks about anger, wrath, and malice. And that's no accident. The Apostle Paul here understands what Jesus himself taught, which is that out of the abundance of our heart, so our mouth speaks. The words that we use don't materialize from thin air. They arise from attitudes of our heart. The point being, we really can't change the way we speak, not effectively, not in the long term. We can't put those things off, put on the right things until we actually change our hearts, until we change who we are at the very core. But we know this from experience, and we know this from the Bible, that is not something that we can do. It's something that must be done for us and to us. And Paul actually hints at that here in verses 9 through 10. Listen to what he says here. He says, do not lie to one another. We've seen that part already, but now he's going to tell us why. What he's saying here is because it doesn't fit with who you are now. You've been changed let's see what he says this change looks like. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Literally, that says old man, and I'm saying that for a reason. We'll come back to that. You have put off the old man with its practices, and you've put on the new self or new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, track with me for a second. We, we just talked a lot about the Apostle Paul's present tense commands to put off and put on. But notice in verses 9 and 10, he uses those same phrases, but now they're in the past tense. He says, you have put off the old man, and you have put on the new man. So now he's not commanding something for you to do. He's describing something that's already done. 
All right, what's he talking about? We can understand this more clearly by looking at the earlier verses in the chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 now. Here's how he explains what he means. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Pay attention to the way he worded all that. He says, you have died. It's done. It's in the past. If you want to put to death the wrong ways of speaking, you first have to die. But you don't stay dead. He says, now you have been raised with Christ. Again, think about the way he words that. That's not something he says that you did. It's something that was done to you. Dead people can't raise themselves. God has to do that. You've been raised to life, but now your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a, that's a temporal way of speaking, a location. Your life is now with Christ and God. So the picture that Paul is painting here of how we actually change, how we change our hearts, how we actually become what we call Christians, the picture he's painting here is not just, it's not just a transformation of our nature, that's a true idea, but he's really, he's really painting a picture here of a transportation into a new realm of living. And he makes this very clear in chapter one of this letter where he says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, using all that, go back to this old man, new man phrases that he keeps using. I told you we'd come back to that. What he's saying there is that apart from faith in Jesus, all of us are members of the old man, of the old humanity, whose leader was Adam and his failure led to death. But through faith in Jesus, you put off that old humanity and you put on the new humanity. You become members of the new humanity whose leader is Jesus, whose obedience brings life. The entire reason I'm explaining all that is that, is that when you begin to understand and view Christianity through that lens of entering into a new realm, it really begins to help you understand why Christians sometimes don't live or speak any better the non-Christians. That's kind of the perennial problem, isn't it? Why aren't Christians any better at this than us? Aren't they supposed to be? Here's the answer. The teaching of Christianity isn't mainly that God is a reformer who makes bad people good. The teaching of Christianity is that God is a king who takes abandoned and abused orphans, brings them into his home, and makes them his children. And when he first does that, when he brings them in, he gives them new clothes to match their new status. They are royalty now. That's why Paul is using this put off and put on language in these two different senses. What he's saying is that if, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, God has put off your status as an orphan and he's put on your status as a child of the most high king. Nothing can change that. He did it for you. You accept it by faith. But now you need to start living like it. You've got to put off the old rags and put on the new clothes. You have to become in practice who God has already made you in status. Let's take a breath. Again, the question is, how? Because if we're all honest, that's a whole lot easier said than done. I mean, I get that. I can understand what you're saying, Anthony, but how do I actually do it? So let's go back to our little orphan analogy. Studies are clear that even, even after being adopted by a loving family, orphans often struggle to adapt to their new 
status. And, and the reason is clear. It's that over, over the years of being abused and neglected, they developed patterns of thinking and beliefs that told them they're unlovable, worthless, hopeless, ugly, and incapable of change. To keep using Paul's clothing analogy here, when God adopts someone as his child, sometimes their tendency is to chafe under the new clothes that he's provided and so return to the old familiar rags. What, what that former orphan needs is constant teaching and constant reminders to unravel all the wrong ways of thinking and replace them with right ways of thinking. In other words, they need exactly what Paul says we all need at the end of verse 10. He says, you've put off the old self and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other places, he just simply calls this the renewing of our minds. We've traced out all of Paul's thoughts to get to this place. If we want real change in our lives, even, even though we've already been changed and we've become Christians, if you want real change, you must have your mind constantly renewed. Here's the root problem. I'm, I'm going to make this specific to the ninth commandment, but really applies to all of our issues with speech and behavior. The ultimate reason that we tell lies with our mouths is because we believe lies in our minds. Let me rephrase that. The ultimate reason that we tell lies with our mouths or we slander or we talk obscenely or we talk harshly or whatever, the ultimate reason we do that is because we believe lies in our minds. The question is, well, what lies do we believe then, Anthony? The same lies that humans have been believing ever since the beginning in the Garden of Eden. If you go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 3, most of us are probably familiar with this story to some degree. You'll find the devil coming disguised as a serpent, and he lies to those first humans, Adam and Eve, in at least three ways. Let me tell you what those lies were. Number one, he lied by distorting the content of God's good word. He said, did God actually say not to eat of any tree in the garden? Does God really command that? That's lie number one. Lie number two, he lies about the destructive results of sin. You won't, you won't surely die. This, this behavior, this decision, it's really not that bad. And then lie number three is the lie about God's own heart for his people. He says to Adam and Eve, God doesn't want you to have this fruit because then he knows that you will be like him. In other words, you can't trust him because he's holding something good back from you. Those are the three original lies, and over and over throughout the course of our lives, those lies become more deep-seated in our minds, and the only solution, the only solution to kill those lies is to do it with the truth. That's what it means to have our knowledge, to have our minds renewed. Now, if you're tempted to just dismiss everything I said because we're dealing with a story about, you know, talking snakes and forbidden fruit, I would, just, I would just ask you, I get it, I would just ask you to consider that everything I just said are, are truths and ideas that modern and secular psychologists, therapists, counselors have been utilizing and believing for decades now. They just call it a different name. They call it cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of you may be familiar with that, but I, I want you to see the parallels here. I just want to read to you from, from the American Psychological Association's um, definition on their website of what CBT is, cognitive behavioral therapy. Just listen to how similar this is. CBT is a form of psychological treatment that's been demonstrated to be effective for a range of problems, including depression, anxiety disorders, 
alcohol and drug use problems, marital problems, eating disorders, and severe mental illness. In many studies, it has been demonstrated to be as effective as or more effective than other forms of psychological therapy or psychiatric medications. Whatever this is, it's pretty powerful. Listen to what it is now. It is based on several core principles, including psychological problems are based in part on faulty or unhelpful ways of thinking. CBT treatment usually involves efforts to change thinking patterns. These strategies might include learning to recognize one's distortions in thinking that are creating the problems and then to reevaluate them in light of reality, end quote. In other words, you can learn techniques all day to modify your behavior, and you may find some success in doing so, but you will not ultimately experience deep and lasting change until you dig underneath those behaviors to discover and correct the lies and distortions and misperceptions of reality that have taken root in your heart and mind to cause those behaviors. Thousands of years before it was ever called cognitive behavioral therapy, the Bible simply called it the renewing of our minds. Now, notice in verse 10, we're drawing to a close here, notice in verse 10 exactly how the Apostle Paul phrases that, though this is important. He doesn't just simply say our new self was renewed in knowledge, like it's a one-time deal, you're done, move on. He says our new self is being renewed in knowledge. Think about all those different grammar tenses he used, and you probably think none of that's important, it doesn't matter, but it's a picture of the Christian life that he's called us to. It starts with something that's done to us. God has raised you from the dead with Christ. He's placed you with Christ. He has put off that old man, put on the new man. And then he calls you to actually do things, put off all those old things, put on those new things. But the only way you can do that is by having your mind constantly renewed. So now here's the question. We're getting to the the final big question here. How can we actually have our our minds renewed on a regular basis? Where do we actually find the ultimate truth to combat the lies that we believe to destroy the lies that we tell. And Paul gives us the answer in Colossians 3, 16. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and the worship team can come up. Here's the answer. This is how we have our mind renewed on a regular basis. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If we want to stop believing the wrong words so that we can start speaking the right words, we must fill our hearts and minds with the Word, the Word of Christ, the message of Jesus, what we typically call the gospel. This Word of Christ is the ultimate answer to all of the serpent's lies. Think about them for a second, all those three lies we just talked about. Where the serpent said, did God really command this? The Word of Christ says, yes, He did. And look at how Jesus perfectly obeyed them, submitting to His loving, perfect Father. Where the serpent said, is sin really that harmful? The Word of Christ says, yes, it is. Look at what it cost Jesus, the perfect Son of God, nailed to a cross, dead, buried for our sins. And where the serpent said, God is keeping something back from you. He doesn't love you. The word of Christ says, no, God didn't hold anything 
back. He loved you so much, he gave his only son. His only son willingly laid down his life, and they both did it so that they could have you, and you could have them, and eternal life, and perfect joy, and forgiveness, and a million other treasures thrown in. That is the word of Christ that renews our minds so that it can change the way we live and speak. And chapter 3, verse 16 says that it's not enough to just believe this word once. That's not what it says. It doesn't say believe the word of Christ. Of course that's true. It says let it dwell. Let it, let it make its home among you richly in all kinds of different ways. In other words, we don't just need this gospel like a ticket that we show the doorman to get into the palace party and then we toss it aside. We need this gospel as our birth certificate that we hold on to with dear life to remind ourselves and to remind everybody else that we're not just guests in this palace. We're family. We're blood. We belong here. We need this gospel as a map in our pockets, guiding us around the palace, showing us all the rooms full of possessions that are ours to enjoy. We need this gospel as a purchase agreement, proving that these new clothes of righteous living and righteous speaking really do belong to us, and we need this gospel as a set of instructions teaching us how to put them on. As our minds are renewed with this word of Christ, it will give us the power to put off the filthy rags of slanderous, obscene, false, and thoughtless words that tear people down, and it will give us the confidence to put on the royal garments of kind, pure, true, and thoughtful words that seek to build people up. Everything I've been trying to say comes down to this. If you truly want to not bear false witness against your neighbor, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear true witness to your heart and mind, not just one time, but all the time. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I'll be the first to say that I need my mind renewed. I believe lies. And because I believe lies, it affects the way I live, it affects the way I speak, it affects the way I treat other people, and it breaks your heart. My prayer for myself, my prayer for everyone under my, the sound of my voice is that you would, by the power of the word of Christ, by the power of the gospel, and by the power of your spirit, you would identify those lies in our lives and that you would kill them with your truth. That you would teach us and remind us that through faith in Jesus, we are loved, we are accepted, we are safe, we are secure, and therefore we can treat people better than we treat ourselves. We can look after other people's interests before we look after ourselves. We can treat them as more significant than even ourselves because that's how you treated us. It makes so much sense to me, Father, that these are the kind of words you would teach us to use because this is exactly who you are. You're the God who seeks our good and not our harm so much that you let yourself be harmed for us. So may your spirit and may your word do a powerful work in us, not just today or tomorrow or next week, but every day for the rest of our lives. Give us the power through the word of Christ to not bear false witness against our neighbor, against our friend, against our family, against our brother and sister in Christ, but to speak good words that seek to build them up because we're all on this journey together. Help us to remember it and live it out. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.